1975, the decision makers at Atari decided that they wanted to turn their best-selling hit arcade cabinet Pong into a single-player game. The idea was to turn Pong into a game in which players would use the paddle to hit the ball against bricks which would then disappear. In order to design the circuit board of the cabinet, they turned to an engineer in their ranks named Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs in turn hired his friend Steve Wozniak to help finish the job. And together, these men designed Breakout, which was released by Atari in May of 1976. Today, we're going to look at the creation of Breakout, which may include these people that you're familiar with for some reason, and we'll talk about a brief legal history of early copyright law as it applies to video games. Why are we looking at copyright law? We'll stick around and find out as we take you to court on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you happy and well. Hello and welcome to the 141st episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, a technology, just something relevant to this week in history, period. While doing so, We hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Breakout, an arcade cabinet released by Atari in May of 1976. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is still waiting for his breakout. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, we're 141 episodes in. When's it coming? Well, Dave, it's this one. It, it is going to be. It, yeah, this is actually the breakout episode. Good one. Yeah, so, yeah there we go. It's today. Right. Well, that was that Wait, was easy to answer. 41 episodes. It was <laughs> 141 episodes. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, bother. All right. Well, moving on to the app topic. What have we been playing this past week? Well, Dave. This week has seen some RuneScape and some Rocket League. Um, yeah, it's really mostly it. Nice. Just a lot of those, too. How nice. about yourself? I We played some Rocket League, and I had a chance to play some Sea of Thieves this weekend with some friends. Nice. Uh, and that will, that's it. Just Rocket League and Sea of Thieves. So I had a, another group of friends that has been asking me to play that forever. And I have protested and protested, not really protested, just, you know, too many games, too little time. And I don't know this weekend. I was like, sure. Why not? They caught me at the right place, right time. You know? Yeah. It's a fun game to play with people. With people, yes. I'm not much of a fan of it by yourself, but with people, it's fun. Yeah, I remember playing it when it first came out and not having people, and I thought it was dumb. And it's like, not only is the game bigger and better now, but also it's so different with people. And this is a fun group of people, so we just make fun of each other and blow each other up the whole time. Anyway, Breakout. Breakout. Ever play Breakout? I cannot say that I have. No, I just know that it exists. Have you ever wasted any time in games in this genre, the brick breaking game genre? I mean, I have two. That's not really the same. Well, okay, Yeah, no, I guess you're saying um, I'm trying to think there was one on Pogo games or something like that. Yeah, Um, there's one on like everything. Well, yeah, but there that was the specific one I remember playing when I was growing didn't up, like Zuma's Revenge or something like that. Didn't the one? Nah, that's the one with the little marbles that you shot everywhere. But didn't the oh, one is that on, not what this is? No, no, we're doing brick breaking when you have the paddle ball at the bottom and it, and the ball goes to the top and it breaks the bricks and they disappear. Okay, I guess I can see. It's the same concept, kinda. Eh, yeah. 
I remember one. I, there was one on Pogo or something or another, but what I remember about it is the game would drop, like when you broke the bricks, it would drop power ups to like make your paddle bigger or yep, give you extra I, balls or. Um, that's stuff like definitely that. the same one that I remember. Yeah, I definitely. Just can't for I life me remember the name of it. Yeah, it's definitely not Zuma's Revenge because if I'm not mistaken, Zuma's Revenge is with the the marbles in the circle that you had to shoot the three color marbles. So. You might be right. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. So the one that you're, we're now just the brick one. I, I don't remember the name of it, but I, I have experience with that. Not really any other games. I think um, a modern one is arachnoid is a modern brick breaker. No, I haven't played um, that. I don't know. Is that but, with spiders? Uh, no, 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 no. But we're going back to the seventies to the golden age of arcades and we're going to learn about Breakout, which is, for all purposes, a rather important game in video game history. Maybe not a game that's well known for people, but for various reasons that we're about to learn, it's a very important game. So it's 1975, and one of the founders of Atari, Nolan Bushnell, who would later go on to found Chuck E. Cheese, uh, wants to turn Pong into a single player game. So his idea now Pong was 1972, just to put everything into perspective. So we're three years from Pong, which was like the not the first arcade cabinet, but like commercially, it was like the first huge arcade cabinet um, that was mass produced, basically. So we're three years from that and they want to turn Pong into a single player game. Right. And the idea that he had that Bushnell had was to turn Pong into a game in which the players would use a paddle to keep the ball in the air as it depletes a wall of bricks. So ball hits a brick, brick disappears, rinse and repeat until the screen is empty. Now, this idea wasn't exactly out of nowhere. Truth be told, in 1974, there was a company called Ramtech that released a game called Clean Sweep. Now, Ramtech was founded in 1971, uh, it was an American manufacturer of computers, computer graphic displays, and eventually coin-operated graphic displays in 19, I think, 81. Somewhere somewhere in there, they were like the leading uh, name in rasterized displays at one point. So they were a big deal. I don't remember them, to be honest with you. They were probably gone by the time I you know, came up and then you... But uh, yeah, so Ramtech eventually gets into coin-operated graphic displays. Clean Sweep was their actual first one, and it is generally considered to be a primitive predecessor to Breakout. Now, you can go online and find the actual advertisement that Clean Sweep sent out to advertise their game. They're always interesting because, you know, when you read them, there's things in there you don't think about. Like, Rob, did you know that Ramtech video games are backed by the most responsive service in the industry? I did not know that, Dave. Yeah, when repairs are needed, they're done fast. And new logic boards can be in the air within 24 hours. And in, case you, in case you didn't know, when it comes to service, Ramtech doesn't play games. Just makes them, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, Clean Sweep was advertised as a major money-making breakthrough in coin-operated video games because, as the advertisement goes, it could be played by one or two people, can be set to award free games for high scores, and allows you to have either three or five balls for each play or player. The number of balls and the free game score were both operator-selectable, so arcade operators could pick how stingy they wanted to be or not, basically. In Clean Sweep, players would try to erase a field of dots by directing a bouncing ball with a joystick-controlled paddle that's moved horizontally across the bottom of the screen. Each time the ball passed over a dot, the dot disappears, the player gets a point. If he erases all the dots, he scores a Clean Sweep and can win a free game. So Clean Sweep. Now Clean Sweep ended up being the third best-selling arcade cabinet across the entire United States for all of 1974. It sold roughly about 3,500 cabinets. Now, we'll never really know whether or not Clean Sweep was a direct inspiration for Breakout, but it's really unlikely, given that it was the third most popular arcade video game, that Nolan Bushnell never stumbled across Clean Sweep, you know, given how popular it was. 
The other two arcade cabinets that were more popular than Clean Sweep were both manufactured by Key Games. I think one was Tank and one was Grand Track 10. And Key Games was the operating division of Atari at that point. Eventually, Atari bought them straight out and integrated them. But at that point, they were a manufacturing arm of Atari. So the top two games were Atari games. And then the next most popular was was Clean Sweep. You know, so it's really hard. It's it's kind of I don't think it's a far stretch to assume that maybe he was like, eh, maybe we should do something to cash in on the popularity of the game that's not ours in the top. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. 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 It's not a far, not a far cry. It's, 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 you know, it's good. It, it could be, it could be a good move. You, it really depends, you know. I mean, hey, well, I guess we'll find out through the rest of this episode. I guess we'll find out. We'll actually never find out. So, oh damn, yeah. Womp, so, Bush, womp. so Bushnell just, I mean, I'm convinced he just knows the game's going to be popular. So he puts his his main guy in charge of the project. Uh, it's the guy who is the creator of Pong, LL Corn, and so he's project manager. Alcorn and Bushnell assign a computer engineer uh, who we know. Uh, he goes by the name of Steve Jobs. Uh, the task of designing um, a prototype. Yep. At this oh. point, this is pre-Apple. Steve Jobs worked for Atari at the time. Neat. Now, Breakout was a discrete logic chip game, meaning that whereas modern games are computers, they have one microprocessor and storage that does everything arcade cabinets back then had a bunch of individual chips that each controlled different aspects of the game. Now, you know, there were other arcade games that Atari produced between pong and breakout. You know, I said grand track 10 was the second most popular game in, in 74 anti-aircraft in 75 crash and score in 75 highway 75 jet fighters. There was just a bunch of Atari arcade cabinets that happened in between. Now, these were all games built during this period. All the arcade cabinets were using discrete logic chips because microprocessors weren't a thing yet. And on average, each of these arcade cabinets contained anywhere from 150 to 170 individual logic chips. Which is just crazy to think about nowadays, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the time, that's insane. Yeah, it really is. But this was new. I mean, like the the arcade industry just started in 1972. We're only two years removed from it. And like like logic chips chips themselves are, are newer. Like the whole this whole industry is learning as it goes along, you know. So Steve Jobs is offered seven hundred and fifty dollars to build the prototype of Breakout. And uh, with an award, like they offered him a bonus award for each chip he used. That was that was less than 50 because Bushnell was tired of building arcade cabinets with 170 individual chips. Right. I mean, yeah, understandably. Yeah. So Jobs agrees to the job, says he can do it within four days. Now, Bushnell got the idea that this could be done from Steve Jobs' friend, Steve Wozniak, the later co-creator <laughs> of wow. Apple. Now, Wozniak, what a lineup. Wozniak was an employee of Hewlett-Packard at the time, and he, at some point, had designed a version of Pong that only used 30 chips. So Bushnell had this idea. He's never come out and said it, but he clearly had an idea. Now, Steve Jobs was not a circuit engineer. He had very little knowledge of circuit board design, but he had a friend. He had a friend who was very good at it. So just as Bushnell likely planned, Jobs convinced Wozniak to work with him, promising to split the fee evenly if they could achieve the goal of building this prototype with less than 50 chips. So this is the start of the uh, reliance on Wozniak, huh? Kind of, kind of. Huh. Interesting to know it goes that far back. I honestly don't know if they did anything sooner. I never thought to look at that, but it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that they're both the creators of Breakout. So Wozniak got to work. He had nothing more than a description of the game to work off of. They didn't plan or anything. They just said, this is what we're thinking. 
build build it. At least Steve Jobs told him that, right? So he goes to his job at Hewlett Packard during the day, and then he spends four straight nights at Atari uh, working to prototype this game. In the end, they came up with a design. He, let's be fair, he came up with a design that used 42 chips. And the final working breadboard that they turned into Atari ended up having 44 chips. Now, this was six under the agreed upon limit of 50. And there was a bonus involved. And this bonus equated to about $5,000. But Jobs never told Wozniak what the bonus actually was. Oh, damn. In fact, Wozniak was led to believe that Atari had promised Steve Jobs an extra $700 for a design using fewer than 50 chips and 1000 for a design using fewer than 40. So in a 1984 interview, Wozniak was quoted as saying that he knew that they only got 700 bucks for it. Wow. So screwing Wozniak over right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. Right Ooh. from the beginning. Not surprised. Jeez. Not surprised. Now, the irony of this whole situation, truth be told, is that Atari was not actually able to use Wozniak's design. <laughs> by designing oh. it by designing it with as few chips as possible, the design ended up being difficult to manufacture. It was too compact and too complicated for Atari's mass manufacturing methods. So other engineers had to put their hands on it and they had to redesign it to fit their manufacturing methods. And in the end, the commercial cabinets that went out contain about 100 uh, discrete logic chips. So, I mean, it was, it was, you know, not not 170, but not 44, you know. It was, it was definitely a little less than uh, on average there for the time. Now, Wozniak in a later interview said that he that with 100 chips, it was identical to his design. He literally could fi- he literally could not find a single difference between Atari's design and his design. So the game is exactly as he designed it with 44 chips. So. And this was pretty much the last thing that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak ever did for Atari at the time. Jobs left Atari, Wozniak left Hewlett Packard, and the two of them ended up founding Apple on April 1st, 1976. Atari ends up putting Breakout into production, and it was launched in arcades on May 13th, 1976, so just over a month later. And for all purposes, Breakout was stupid popular. It was the fifth highest earning arcade game in 76. It was the third highest earning arcade game in the United States in 77. And it was the fifth highest again throughout all of 1978. So top five highest earning arcade cabinet for three straight years. Which is just crazy in this golden age of arcades. Yeah, that, that's some pretty impressive numbers there. And Atari went on to make a version for the Atari 2600 that also went on to sell about 1.6 million units. Oh, is that it? That's it. Yeah, yeah, it's reasonable, you know. So basically, it was everywhere and everyone was playing it. If you don't know what Breakout is, you know, we tried to describe at the front, but basically you have rows of bricks at the top and a, a paddle you know, a line, a bar at the bottom and the ball comes down, it bounces off the bar, goes to the top. And when it hits a brick, the brick disappears. You get points and you just rinse and repeat until the screen is empty. And then it takes you to another level. You know, more bars, ball gets faster, stuff like that. Just rinse and repeat. It was really popular. I mean, it was essentially single player pong in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah, it is. It's single player pong. I mean, it is. So Breakout is incredibly important to video games. Not because of how it exists in itself. I don't think brick breaking is a genre that people go gaga over anymore. It's not going to be the fifth highest earning video game in the United States anymore. That's just not going to happen. I couldn't oh, tell you the on, last Dave. I think it would. Y- come yeah, on. Yeah, you think so? I couldn't tell you the last time I saw a brick breaking video game. So, you know. But, but it is, I mean, it was one of the most notable games of the late 70s. 
and it did inspire an entire genre of clones. I mean, there were a lot of brick breaking games that were developed off of this. And it's what people did there that is Breakout's biggest contribution to video game history. Now, before I get into that specifically, I do want to point out a few other ways that Breakout contributed. So one really interesting thing about Breakout is that Steve Wozniak has come right out and stated that it directly influenced his design for the Apple II computer. Now, Rob, we've talked about Apple II a lot, right? In the early PC gaming era, it was like the computer. And we learned that they weren't all monochrome. Remember that moment? Yeah. They actually had a color screen, Apple II. We just, we were poor and never saw it. Uh, yeah, that, that. I mean, that's, that's, th- that's it. I don't know anyone who had a color Apple II. No, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that they were had any colors in any of them. Right. I, it was something we just didn't really need. Nope. So Wozniak literally was quoted as saying in an interview, a lot of features of the Apple II went in because I had designed Breakout for Atari. I had designed Breakout for hardware, and now I wanted to write it for so- in software. So some of the designs he noted were as a result of this concept they included the way he designed color graphic circuitry his addition of game paddle support of sound and his his addition of graphic commands in the integer basic that was found in the apple II computer basically he said all of the game features were put in just so i could show off the game i was familiar with which is breakout at the homebrew computer club It was the most satisfying day of my life when I demonstrated Breakout, totally written in basic. It seemed like a huge step to me. After designing hardware arcade games, I knew that being able to then program them in basic was going to change the world. Now, he called his software clone for the Apple II Breakout. It was available on the Apple II. Breakout, Breakout, get it? Get it? Get it? (laughs) I didn't get that, actually. But yeah, it was... I mean, Breakout was, a you know, he wanted to put Breakout on there and said all the features that I put in the arcade cabinet are going to go in the Apple II. So thank you, Breakout. Also, the creator of Space Invaders, Tomohiro Nishikado, cited Breakout as the original inspiration for Space Invaders. Now, we've talked about this before. Just want to touch on it again. He wanted to take the sense of achievement and the tension that rises when you destroy targets one at a time and he wanted to turn that into a shooting game breakout direct inspiration for the atari 2 and for space invader but breakout's most important contribution to video games comes in the form of a court case that it was at the center of you see here in the 70s when these video games were made Video games were copyrighted, but no one was really holding anyone to that concept. So like I said, Breakout inspired a whole genre of clones. There were a lot of other almost identical brick-breaking games, but no one was doing anything about it. It really wasn't until the 1980s that the concept of legitimately copywriting video games was even put up for debate. Now, one of the earliest legal rulings about copyright in video games came in 1981. It was a case called Atari versus Amusement World Incorporated. Now, in 1979, Atari had released Asteroids. We're Asteroids fans, aren't we? I played it once or twice. Just a little bit. Happens to be our dad's favorite. Uh-oh. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I've definitely had that music seared into my brain. <laughs> that's how I was remembering. I always said that that's their, his favorite. So, yeah, no, it definitely is. Uh, we, we took a vacation that had an arcade cabinet inside and he played a lot of asteroids. Oh, uh, I'm pretty sure Galaga, too. Oh, uh, but yeah, I drove everyone crazy. So good the music on. Uh, it was. Yeah. So asteroids is released 1979. And there's this little small five employee company called Amusement World that thought they could produce a game to compete with Asteroids. You know, prior to this, they were a repair company. They're literally just a company that repaired arcade cabinets when they broke. But they had an idea to compete with Asteroids. And with that idea in mind, 
and their repair knowledge, they managed to turn it into their own arcade cabinet, which they called Meteors. Now, both games involved dodging and shooting space rocks, but Meteors had color graphics. Now, Atari took it to court, alleging that Meteors was substantially similar to Asteroids and therefore was infringing on their copyright. Amusement World argued that granting Atari this copyright would essentially grant them a monopoly over any game about spaceships and asteroids. This is where we're at in copyright law and video games. That's what we're arguing about here in 1981. I mean, it was a lot simpler then. It was, but that also made it a little more complicated at the time, and we're going to get into that. So, Now, the judge in the case, Judge Young, he disagreed with Amusement World for their argument, and he granted copyright protection to Atari for symbols that appear on the display screen, the way in which those symbols move around a screen, and the sound emanating from the game cabinet. That's directly from the ruling. Still, and furthermore, the judge determined that this copyright would not create a monopoly, as anyone could potentially create a game about asteroids, so long as they adopted a different expression of that idea with different symbols, different movements, and different sounds. After finding that Atari owned a valid copyright in their Asteroids game, Judge Young then compared it to Meteors and found 22 instances where the games were identical or similar, as well as finding nine differences. The similarities included uh, both games had exactly three sizes of space rocks and that the rocks always split into two smaller, faster moving rocks. The controls for the ships were functionally identical and both games awarded the player an extra life if they scored 10,000 points. On the other hand, the differences he noted was that Meteors was a faster game, the movement in its rocks was different, and it had color graphics, whereas Asteroids was only in black and white. In his analysis, Judge Young cited what's called the principle of idea expression distinction from a court case, uh, Mazer and Stein in 1957. And it stated that while one's expression of an idea is copyrightable, the underlying idea that one uses is not. Now, the similarities between the games were determined to basically be that the over idea, you know, is that you shoot down space rocks with a spaceship. And that was just an overall idea that could not be protected by copyright. With that in mind, Judge Young called the similarities inevitable, and he reasoned that the two games were different in terms of their overall feel due to Meteors being faster, more difficult, and more graphically realistic. And in his, in his concluding remarks, he explained that Amusement World based their game on the plaintiff's copyrighted game, to put it bluntly. The defendants took the plaintiff's ideas. However... The way copyright laws were written at the time, this is not prohibited. Copyright protection is available only for the expression of ideas and not the ideas themselves. And so he ruled in what was one of the first cases of this ever and one, and definitely the first one where it was ruled for the defendant that Amusement World did not violate Atari's copyright of Asteroids. Kind of weird. Kind of. Yeah, that's yeah. Now, this legal case is important because it's the first time where a court ever compared the numerous similarities and differences between two video games. And it was the first time ever that a court applied complex copyright principles to video games. Now, video game copyright was right back in court again a few months later in March of 1982. Now, this case was called Atari Incorporated versus North American Philips Consumer Electronics Corp. So basically, Atari had licensed Pac-Man from Namco and Midway to produce a version for the Atari 2600. And about the same time, Philips created a similar maze chase game called Munchkin, which led Atari to sue copy or Philips for copyright infringement, right? Now, in their discovery they found that Casey Munchkin was actually inspired by Pac-Man. The programmers at Philips had played Pac-Man at least once before they started designing their own version of it. Both are maze chase video games where the player directs a gobbler character to consume dots while avoiding monsters. 
Both games also allow the character to eat the monster after consuming a power capsule, as well as they both have similar scoring and game over conditions. There were differences between the game. Munchkin's maze shifted during gameplay, and the power dots would move to make it more complicated to catch them. They basically tried to avoid getting eaten. They they also have different numbers, different placement of dots. Uh, Munchkin had rectangular dots that are randomly placed. The characters aren't identical. Uh, Munchkin, the character of Casey Munchkin, has horns and eyes and is green. Of course, we all know what Pac-Man looks like, one of the most iconic you know, video game characters ever. The monsters in Munchkin are not ghosts. They're like bugs. They have short antenna. Um, yeah. So Phillips argued that Casey Munchkin was totally different. That was literally the words in their court ruling. But despite their differences, the public recognized many similarities between the games. Uh, I mean, but they are similar, aren't they? They're very similar, but I feel that any game that's like that would be. I mean, you can change character design, but if you're going to have a maze game where there's creatures that can attack you and you want to have a way to be able to attack them and not just avoid them. There's only so much variation you can do. It's true. So it's kind of it, it kind of locks out of the genre if they base it on that. It's true. And we get to that. We definitely do. So the advertising for Munchkin openly compared the game to Pac-Man and they sent private investigators into stores and those PIs found that retailers were making the same comparisons to their customers. So with all this discovery, you know, all of this evidence just, you know, presented to the court, uh, Atari and Midway said we want to sue Phillips for copyright infringement and we want them to they basically filed an injunction to halt sales of Munchkin and they lost initially in district court. They appealed and the appeals court found that Munchkin had likely copied the unique expression of Pac-Man, particularly the character design, and the appeals court forced Phillips to ban sales of Munchkin. Yeah, that just honestly, that feels to me like you're locking out any type of game with that similar idea. It's I know it just means Pac-Man's the only one that can exist. And maybe that's not what their intention was, but there's only so much variation you can have. So what's going on here is and you know, I, I haven't really dived into these cases, but copyright law to video games as we progress into the 80s here was really about whether or not video games were fixed audiovisual works and could be protected as such. So a fixed work is like a movie, a TV show, a board game. They're, they don't change, right? They're things that just are. The design of them are and always will be. And they were arguing over whether or not video games were actually fixed audiovisual works. And they were debating whether or not they could be copyrighted as a fixed audiovisual work or if the copyright belonged to the underlying code only. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it definitely does. So the counter argument was always in a lot of these cases, they can't like, so of course, when you file for copyright injunction, you know, infringement, you say, okay, this is my game. If they're looking at it as fixed, because that's the way you'd want to look at it. This is our fixed work. We created this. It's our work of art. You can't recreate it. We have it copyrighted. And the argument, for the most part, was always, well, it's not a fixed work of art. It's a bunch of code. And depending on who's playing it and how they're playing it, your audiovisual elements would change. How can it be fixed if it's changed by the player how could the artist copyright something that was that was fluid, uh, you know, that was available to be changed by people who played it? You get you 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 follow that the gist of that. You, you kind of lost me at the end there. I'm not going to lie. So so that was the so the counter argument was like they, it can't it's not a fixed audiovisual work because every time a new player stepped up to it, the, it changed. It can't be fixed. I mean, your, your graphics, you're right. The exact same sequence of scenarios may not be fixed, but you're still going to have the same overall scenario using the same graphics. I mean, I don't know about that one. 
Well, neither did the courts, to be honest with you. So, kudos. Cases like this continue through the 80s. Uh, In 1982, there was also the case of Stern Electronics versus Kaufman. Uh, It held that Omni video games violated the copyright and trademark of Scramble, which was an arcade game marketed by Stern Electronics. Scramble was a side-scrolling shooter uh, created by Konami. It was marketed in America by Stern Electronics. Uh, Omni saw it, produced a nearly identical game, named it Scramble, and began making almost identical cabinets of it. So, you know, it's a whole different ball game when that's what we get to, when you're literally naming it the same thing and it's a nearly identical game, right? Yeah, that that's a little Pushing easier. That, yeah. That's a little easier to determine. Omni argued that they did not copy Konami's underlying code at all. So they were taking the code route. And that despite the fact that there are similarities in the audiovisual display, they their Omni's whole argument was that Konami couldn't register any copyright in their game as an audiovisual work as the display for a video game varies each time that it is played and therefore it's not fixed. So what we were just talking about, this is literally the case that that is right at the forefront. Now the court inevitably, inevitably rejected Omni's argument. They stated that, that scrambles audio visual display was sufficiently fixed due to the repeated use of specific images and sounds. So that's what you were talking about, right? Right. So the court found that the games were nearly identical in their audio video display and they granted an injunction against Omni's game and said, uh, uh-uh, uh, nope, you can't copy that blatantly. All right. I, I mean, that's what we've been working towards, right? You know, it, it's, it's for us, let's be honest for us. It's weird to think of a world where copyright doesn't exist, right? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so many things. It's funny how something something so minor can get hit for copyright strike. I mean, obviously, for anyone who's had anything in the music news, there have been a lot of oh, this new artist copyrighted this song from 1940s. I know. Well, I mean, we just had the the case where Ed Sheeran was, uh, you know, sued in court, and it was it a had, Marvin Gaye song, right? Yep, and it had awful ramifications for musical artists. Because they were basically trying to like say, well, it's a similar chord progression and melody and stuff like this. And Ed Sheeran's like, no, it's not. And if you rule that it is, I mean, you're going to stifle creativity and music everywhere because it's going to make people terrified to what use chord progression, which has been around for thousands of years, probably, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, Luckily, the court did not didn't. So, I mean, we're good there. Um, But you're right. I mean, copyright is, you know, in today's day and age where content is so readily available online, copyright is such a concept that everyone is so hyper aware of. But back here, it's crazy to think in the 70s they were copywriting video games and no one was enforcing it. So, you know, Atari makes Breakout and then you just you have a bunch of Breakout clones like and no one eh, whatever don't worry about it you know but that didn't last forever we had all these cases here in the 80s um where copyright law was slowly being challenged and with each subsequent legal case it was being refined and this all came to a head with the court case atari games corp versus oman and Breakout was at the center of that court case. So in 1987, Atari finally gets around to registering a copyright on Breakout. Crazy, huh? Ten years later, almost? Yeah. Eleven I mean, years later? But it, it was pretty well known. It was theirs. So, I mean, tr- well. someone else trying to come out with one and getting it. I mean, they might have. But let's be honest. It's, it's Atari. You're not going to. I know. You're not going to win that one. So in 87, they tried to finally register copyright on Breakout, and the U.S. Register of Copyrights rejects the registration in 1987. Uh, They basically cited 
in their rejection that Breakout lacked sufficient creativity to qualify as its own audiovisual work. Now, the register of the copyrights at the time was Ralph Oman, hence Atari versus Oman, and he determined that Breakout did not have enough creative authorship to qualify as its own copyright about work. In his decision, he stated that the images are simple geometric shapes and the audiovisual display is just the dynamic creation of code rather than a fixed work created by the author. So yeah. what's really interesting is he basically said that copyright doesn't protect geometric shapes nor the simple audio tones and that the arrangement of those shapes into a video game was not copyrightable because the arrangement is created randomly by players and not by the authors of the video game. So there's that whole concept again where they don't see it as a fixed work because the players modify it. So we're, we're here again. Here we are. Atari asked them to reconsider three times throughout 1987, and they were denied all three times. So as the year closes out, Atari sought out a court review of the Copyright Office's decision, challenging it in not accordance with the law and an abuse of discretion on Oman's behalf. So in May of 1988, the district court decides that the register's decision was not an abuse of discretion and that the copyright office had reasonably applied the law at the time. So, of course, Atari not giving up, they appeal it and it goes to the U.S. Appeals Court in the District of Columbia and it was taken up by the appeals court and the majority decision in that case was written by none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What? Shut up. Seriously. And this is, of course, before she was a Supreme Court justice. She was an appeals judge at the time. What the hell? So in this, I know this is this story is so cool because it's like a freaking who's who, right? What, the, the names that are involved in all of this. It's I... funny because literally this case is cited as a like like it's relevant because of all the people because Bushnell is part of it and Jobs is part of it and Wozniak is part of it and Ginsburg is part of it. And so it's like it's literally like it's it's well known because of all the people that are a part of this case. So Judge Ginsburg writes the majority decision and for on behalf of her and all the other judges. And they wrote that simple shapes could be combined in a distinctive manner to indicate ingenuity and that the register may have failed to focus on the work as a whole. Instead, they focused on its individual components. And in their majority decision, they concluded that the Copyright Office had not reasonably explained what the standard of originality was needed to be properly copyrighted. And the register's office was ordered to give renewed consideration to Atari's copyright application consistent with the opinion of the appeals court. So they said, Hey, go back and look at this. Don't focus on the geometric shapes. Don't focus on the sounds. We want you to look at it as a whole and tell us then if you think that it's its own creative work at that point. So yes, they appeal. Tari tries once again to register breakout for copyright and the copyright office refuses a second time. Figured that would happen. So this is April 30th, 1990. This second refusal decision states that the display screens, both individually and as a whole simply lack sufficient creativity to make, make them registratable as audiovisual works. This letter goes on to explain that if they were to grant copyright in a painting of flat geometric shapes, the copyright would be based on the brushstrokes, depth, and perspective, but not the shapes themselves. And of course, you can't control any of that in the way this video game is designed, right? I mean, when you look at it that way, yeah. So that's the way they were looking at it. So, no surprise, Atari sought out court review for a second time. Uh, they take it to the district court. District court dismisses Atari's claim uh, once again in 1991. They defer it back to the register. And so Atari appeals it to the higher court once again. It goes again before the United States Court of Appeals. It is once again brought before Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who writes the majority decision on behalf of the appeals judges. And this time, 
the appeals court granted Atari's appeal, and they held that Breakout is indeed a copyrightable work. So during this legal dispute, there was another case that came into play here. The Supreme Court ruled on a case in 1991 called Feist, I think it's Feist, Feist Publications Incorporated versus Rural Telephone Service Company. And that ruling basically answered the question of how much originality is needed for a valid copyright. Now, Feist Publications versus Rural Telephone Service was a landmark decision by the Supreme Court. It established that information alone without a minimum of original creativity cannot be protected by copyright. So in this case, what happened was Feist had copied information from Rural's telephone listings to include its own after Rural had refused to license the information. So they say, hey, we want your phone numbers. Rural says no. They copy the information anyways. And then Rural goes to sue for copyright infringement. And what the court ruled was that the information contained in Rural's phone directory was not copyrightable and therefore no infringement existed. The basically you can't copyright facts. That's what it boiled down to. You can't copyright facts. You can copyright the way they're expressed, but you can't copyright the facts themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. This decision in Feist versus Rural became central to the question of copyrightability. It established that, and I quote, the requisite, the requisite level of creativity is extremely low. Even a slight amount will suffice. So with that decision behind them, with the Supreme Court ruling that, now Ginsburg can go back and she stated that it would be improper to focus on the individual screens rather than the flow of the game as a whole because the expression of a video game is found in the entire effect of the game as it appears, as it sounds, in its sequence of images. So the Council for the Register argues that their use of abstract images, just geometric shapes, showed a lack of creativity. However, the appeal court basically said, while there's nothing obvious or common about how they're choosing to represent these geometric shapes for the game, they could represent them any way, and they chose to do it like this. Get what I'm saying? Yeah. So in oral arguments, the court responded that the game has a ball that doesn't operate in any standard way. It has a wall that doesn't look like a wall. And these are specific expressions of elements, are they not? So the court further noted that the colors of the bricks were not typical of a standard wall. So these were all unique expressions that are specific to this game. And with that in mind, they found that based on what Feist had dropped down, that the minimal threshold of creativity had been met. The court mentioned that the way the graphics and the sound synchronize, the way the ball changes speed, the they called it fanciful graphics, as well as the design and placement of the scoreboard were all specific to Breakout. And therefore, it was its own unique expression and copyrightable under copyright law. The appeals court ruled that the register was unreasonable in rejecting the copyright ap application against the context of the extremely low level of creativity suggested by Feist. So basically building on all these things we had seen in the eighties, building on video game Kate copyright law, starting with Atari and amusement world and Atari and North American Phillips. And there were others. Um, it all came to this culmination here in Atari versus Oman that basically once and for all finally established that copyright law apply applies to the actual audiovisual outputs of video games, not the underlying code, the way the audiovisual is output to the world. Granting out copyright to the audiovisual display was very important to protect video games, not just from clone developers who copy the game's code pretty much verbatim, but also to those who write distinct code in order to mimic the audiovisual aspects. So they basically saw that this was protecting both fronts, right? Because they're right. There are two ways to do it. You can either completely copy the game, 
but we know that code is complex and there are different ways to write there are different ways to write code that can do the same thing. And if they hadn't distinguished that it was the audiovisual output that was copyrightable, then you would have people just changing the code by, a, you know, a, a, a little bit here and there. And you could argue that it's not the same game. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a lot of complexities that are involved in law and a lot of, obviously for this whole thing shows you just back and forth that, uh, not everyone can agree. So sometimes you just got to change the way things go as we learn. So basically this legal case is, I mean, it's the case it's one of, it's probably it's cited as like one of the, if not the most influential case that shaped the legal understanding of original originality required for copyright as it pertained to video games. And it became the case that was cited that's still cited to this day. There are several software cases, probably hundreds at this point, but in the years that followed, there were several software cases that immediately followed Atari versus Oman in which the courts were able to interpret things differently using that originality requirements with that same minimalistic standard. And essentially that's the basis of video game copyright law as we know it today. And Breakout was right at the center of it. Well, it does make sense now. I was thinking in the beginning how a lot of games are considered clones of others and aren't really getting struck for that. But I mean, you know, when you look at it that way, it, it makes sense now. It does. Well, it, 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 if you go back to the beginning where they talk about like uh, Atari versus Amusement World or company, whatever it was, right? Where they're like, well, if you grant Atari this copyright, they're gonna they're gonna be able to copyright like spaceships and space shooting, and they're right. You know, if copyright had fallen that way, people would have entire genres copyrighted. The, the you know the first person to ever make a first person shooter could say no one else could ever make a first person shooter because these elements are ours. You know, but that's not the way that copyright law dropped, and all they had to determine was that. I mean, hey, we all use the same basic building blocks, but we 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 present them differently. We build them differently and maneuver them differently. And therefore, we're completely different audiovisual works and creative expressions. And so now we have a, a very healthy, um, very healthy video game world, which still has a lot of clones. Let's be honest. But, you know, you know, you know, you know, right. No, I mean, how else can you look at it? That's it. And that's Breakout. I bet you didn't know that, like, that little brick game was so important or interesting, huh? Yeah, no, I... (laughs) (laughs) I'll save it for the takeaway, because this this one blew my mind. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, we talked about uh, Atari... We've talked about Steve Jobs and Wozniak and Nolan Bushnell. These are all people that we've kind of touched on in other episodes. I would encourage you to go check out our whole library of past episodes. There are 140 other ones to listen to. Other equally, maybe, interesting stories. We got a lot of them nowadays. And you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, Dave... A calendar of previous and future episodes can be found there where you can go ahead and leave little comments, uh, especially for ones coming up. It's great to know some things you might have about said games that we're going to be talking or topics even uh, to give us some little insight, a little more things to talk about during the episode. Also on our website, links to things such as bios for Dave and I, and then our social medias can be found, such as me, who is on several platforms as Rob underscore the letter O underscore Raptor, R-A-P-T-O-R. And Davey, what about you? I'm found on various platforms as David is wrong. So if you see a guy who's David and he's wrong, it's it's me. Generally so, yes, it is him. It's definitely me. All right. Well, each week we tell you a story about one, in this case, game relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week, we just told you the fairly interesting story of Breakout and how it is an influential video game due to its 
being a the central component of one of the most important legal cases in video game copyright history. One of the best parts about doing this podcast week in, week out is we get to learn things, in all honesty. We pick video games and we go into a lot of them blind, not knowing the background or history or relevance of these games. And we research them. And as we do the research, we learn ourselves. I got to tell this story to a bunch of people this week because I think it's very fascinating. So that was fun. In recognition of this cycle of learning and teaching, learning and teaching, we always like to go around and talk about our big takeaways. So as Rob just alluded to, I'm going to give him the floor now. So Rob, what'd you think? What'd you learn? Well, Dave, I think my biggest takeaway from this one is, you know, this game, I could never have even told you the name of it. I obviously have seen it many times and have played it before, but I could never told you the names. But the people involved in this <laughs> as a whole, I mean, you got some heavy hitters here. Obviously, the whole Wozniak and Jobs fiasco of Apple and how that all came to fruition, knowing that that all started as far back as this game. Um, and then to have Ruth of and all then, people. I know, what? but let's let's not forget the minor characters. The founder of Atari, Nolan Bushnell, gave the project manager spot to the guy who created pong one of the most influential games of all time yeah no this one's just all around like it's it's crazy that it's not more at the forefront of conversations just because it's such a simple thing that there's not much to talk about but when you look at everything involved with it it's definitely a big ass deal I don't know how else to put it. It is. It's a very important game that has no relevance nowadays. (laughs) I mean, I mean, honestly, that's what I thought when I was like, I was like, oh, breakout. Like, okay, I know it's a pop arcade cabinet, but what what am I going to talk about? Then I was like, oh, oh, Steve Jobs, Wozniak made this. Oh, that's a cool little tidbit that people won't see coming. And and that that's going to make it interesting. But even that, like. That's not enough to fill in. Let's be honest. That was not enough to fill in an hour. That got me 20, 25 minutes. And I was like, well, what else is breakout? Oh, the most important video game copyright course case. Oh, yeah. Sign me up. You know, so it was I agree with you. This one was surprising. This one was fun. And this was this was a very interesting conversation. It came out of a a game that like has little to no relevance in modern gaming, in my opinion. I enjoy these type of games. I, I used to play the heck out of the brick breaking games. They're the type of games that you just play when you don't want to think about anything. Um, that's just it. It's just pure reflex, you know? So I think dad used to play one of his po- Pogo. We said that already Pogo. Dad used to play this on Pogo too, I think. So, yeah. But yeah, that's breakout. That's the brick breaking game. Yay. We did it. We did. And a lot of law talk today. Uh, a lot of law talk today. Yeah, I know. Definitely it's been... something that it's more that my interest than yours. Um, I don't I mean, I don't know how you feel about law cases and things, but I, I quite enjoy learning about them. And this one was definitely a lot of fun things to learn about. Yeah, this one was this one was it was really neat to see how and I, I skipped a few cases for the sake of time. Oh, of course. I mean, the, the new that I can guarantee the number of cases in the depth of all of them. But it was really interesting to to get down to the core component of what the, the, the everyone was arguing and look at how it evolved um, through the 80s because they didn't decide they didn't decide Oma until 1992. So they fought all through the 80s for this this, you know, it took them a decade. It took them a decade, legitimately took them a decade to duke this out, you know, and, and they got there. And that's, you know, now now it's the case cited all the time. So, yeah. All right, Rob. Well, that's Breakout. And uh, that'll do it for today. So before I take it out of here, what would you like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take a quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means the world to us. And we hope that you like listening and learning about all of these crazy, wacky things that go on in the world of games. Very, very true. Well, let's move on to next week. Next week, Rob is going to be one I think you're going to like a lot, too, because we're going to learn about the history of computerized chess. 
we're going to and and look just so people know rob and i play chess uh online we play computerized chess against one another i should say rob plays chess and i try not to get whomped in as few moves as possible but we do so we're familiar with chess so we're going to learn about its history the history of chess the history of computerized chess and we're going to take a look at uh, a large variety of chess video games that have been created throughout the video game history sound like a plan that it does dave so everyone stick around and join us next week as we risk it all with the king's gambit and yet another trip down memory card lane to the thing skip it even better dum dum doo doo